this week on a lively experiment. It's nearing crunch time at the General Assembly with many key issues still in play. And should taxpayers fund breakfast and lunch for all students in Rhode Island? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Brown University political science professor, Wendy Schiller, attorney and legal analyst, Lou Polner, and Bill Bartholomew, political contributor and founder of the Bartholomew Town podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. With a projected mid-June adjournment for this year's General Assembly, lawmakers are kicking into high gear. Once the budget is set in a few weeks, the end will be near. That means a handful of key issues will be voted on or die in committee as the bartering between chambers happens in the final weeks. So folks, the latest thing was last night, uh, we're taping on a Friday morning, the Equality and Abortion Coverage Act has been discussed. It was narrowly passed in a Senate committee, big signing ceremony last night. Wendy, we've had, I remember having this discussion when they codified. We were on this set years ago with Brandon Bell talking about codifying abortion. I wonder what you think about this latest step, because this is something they tried to get through a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I was a little surprised at the enthusiasm of the McKee administration for this move. And certainly, you know, Sakarchi, maybe you would have expected, but Ruggiero sort of moving the ball forward. I think he's been hesitant in the past. You know, there, there's a combination of issues here. One is Medicaid, um, the health insurance program for low income, and then state employees who were not eligible for this kind of coverage. And I think marrying them together makes this politically a little bit more palatable, uh, easier to sell, I think, to a lot of people than just doing it for people who are on Medicaid. So the opponents were, I don't want my tax money going for something that is this but this is the, this is the argument since 1978, right, from, from the Hyde Amendment that said no federal dollars can be spent uh, supporting um, uh, termination of pregnancies. But, but if you're a state employee, you're paying taxes presumably too. And so when he says my taxpayer dollars, they're taxpayers. And people who uh, get Medicaid are very poor, but some are the working poor, and they're also paying taxes. So that's a, a tougher argument because the people who are receiving this um, also pay taxes. Two things. First of all, you know, the uh, Dobbs case overturning Roe versus Wade reserved all this to the states. And I think that was a good decision. And obviously what we're doing here, the governor signed the bill, is to leave it with the states and do as we deem appropriate. Unfortunately, Article 1, Section 2 of the Rhode Island Constitution says that Nothing in this section shall be construed to grant or secure any right relating to abortion or the funding thereof, which leaves it to me and anyone who reads that saying, this isn't going to fly. How do you score that? Does that Yeah, does but that if you've already you codified to... Roe v. Wade in light of... As legal. As legal in the state of Rhode uh, Island, you presumably already violated that provision of the Constitution. So I think that ship has sort of sailed. Don't, I mean, don't they have to have a constitutional convention to amend that before this bill can be legal? Well, uh, either the, the, the challenge to the... I haven't heard of a challenge to the earlier legislation that has been successful. From 2019. From 2019. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have to challenge it in Rhode Island court, but then you'd have to 
to strike down the codification of Roe v. Wade that also, it was the same idea. So this is the back end on the original. You think it's the poisonous fruits of the vine. I, it's I, gone. Th I think the, the fact that they're funding it is what the problem is. Right. That's an interesting argument, charging it on constitutional grounds. We'll see if anybody actually goes forward with that type of, of movement. But look, this was a campaign promise for Governor McKee. It's something that he outlined as soon as the Dobbs decision came down. There was already pressure on really every elected official and candidate to make sure that this got through. Uh, President Ruggiero, his argument was that this is just a practical thing that makes more sense to have everybody under the same insurance protection. Right to life, Rhode Island right to life already called him a traitor, a pro-life traitor. As um, they did Nick Mattiello four years ago. So it's, codified. The, it's, it's the same thing. And look, the McKee administration, they got what they wanted out of it. They met the campaign promise. But that's an interesting point on the constitutionality, uh, something that a, a smart conservative lawyer might investigate putting in some, uh, you know, putting a complaint in. I thought it was interesting. So the Senate committee was where the, really the drama was. They wound up passing at seven to six and they needed the Senate president and the majority leader. And how often do you see that? They got the word, hey, this might be close. Let's show up to put it through. Yeah, I mean, this is a very de a deeply uh, divisive issue. Rhode Island is a majority self-identified Catholic state. Uh, and I think people are uncomfortable uh, in general with funding um, uh, the termination of a pregnancy. Now, on the other hand, if you ask them to save the life of the mother in, cap of, in case of rape or incest, then they'll say, well, maybe in an emergency we'd be okay with that. I think it's abortion on demand or abortion by choice. People, But most abortions are not that. Most abortions are married women uh, who are choosing uh, for some reason or another uh, to uh, terminate a pregnancy. And of course, the expenses of a complicated pregnancy where it's endangering the life of the mother, then you think this really matters to people who have to pay those bills. And that's where you, you, I don't think you could have done that. You know, just in the life of the mother, we're going to take care of emergency spending for you and not extended it to every other circumstance. I thought the optics of, you know, they had the big bill signing ceremony, which they do afterwards, but this was within, you know, hours and people are celebrating it. Seemed did, to have Anna, a, did Anastasia Williams get a pen? I did, she did not get a pen. I don't think she was invited. They crammed a lot of people in there. I saw a wide shot. And I understand this is this is something that people have been working on. But to me, it's a bit of a tin ear to those who were opposing this on moral issues. This isn't just your run of the mill bill. Did that strike you that way? Yeah. But again, I'm, I'm, I was all in favor of these issues being decided by the states, not the federal government. And that's why I wasn't troubled by the Dobbs decision. The only issue I have is the funding, the state funding it. I wonder nationally, North Carolina just passed, uh, there's a whole other story about a state rep who flipped from being a Democrat to a Republican, said she would gave them a supermajority to be able to override a governor's veto. They passed a 12-week ban. And North Carolina had been one of those states where a lot of the redder states mm -hmm. were coming to. Yeah. I wonder how this is going to play out. You keep your eye on things nationally. Abortion was a bigger deal than I think some people thought during the midterms last year. Well, I think North Carolina, you know, people say it's a swing state, but that state legislature has stayed stubbornly Republican for quite some time, although the governor won re-election pretty handily. Um, so that is still a, a purple state. And I think uh, another constituency, um, uh, women in general, but uh, I think suburban women got out the door in 2022 and said, stop 
stop restricting this, stop doing these severe bans. And South Carolina is on the brink or just, um, uh, you know, past a six-week. Six like but Florida. You, most women don't know they're pregnant yeah, I have by a six weeks. I mean, I, that's just, it's just like physically sure. a very difficult thing to know and confirm that you're pregnant by six weeks. So it's essentially banning abortion altogether. I think those states, women in those states, will be mobilized in 2024. Yeah. Nationally, what do you think? Uh, I think it's, we're, it's just another issue that is further dividing the country, right? And we see a completely different set of... Uh, rules, regulations, um, moral code, so to speak, in a place like Florida, as we do in New England. And uh, 100 years from now, will this be one of the seeds that is planted for, I don't know if the country is going to fall apart, but it will look a lot different, I think. What were you going to say, Lou? No, I think <clears throat> I agree with, with the professor. I think six weeks is a little short-sighted. Uh, I don't think you can really, I'm not a woman, but you may not know you're pregnant for well after six weeks. And uh, so I thought that was just uh, beyond and, the pale. And the, and the federal courts have actually pushed those aside, basically put injunctions against six weeks because it's not, it's, that's not the principle um, uh, that they, that they want to support. I, I just think... Doesn't uh, the abortion um, pill and the existence of the abortion pill kind of... Tw um, tweak that six weeks. So the abortion pill is controversial now because it's commonly known as the morning after pill. So if somebody has unprotected um, relationships, then uh, if you're worried about that, you can prevent the formation of a pregnancy, right? That's uh, different in a lot of ways than the way that it is used uh, to do a medical abortion of a of, a, of an embryo, right? So that's a big difference. This is sort of like people make a mistake, they want to correct it before, you know, quote unquote, the embryo forms. This is different. So now uh, a, a conservative circuit court, appeals court judge is ruling on using that as a means of abortion. Uh, well, two thirds of all abortions are actually now by pill. Uh, later in the, the term of the pregnancy. So that's getting very complicated because the, the pro-life people are asking to strike down the FDA's authority to even issue that medically, and that undermines the FDA's authority all across the board, which will cause us all sorts of problems. Right, so, and that pill's been on for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and the Supreme Court seems to have sort of kicked the can literally down the road, yeah. right? They said we're not getting involved in this this term, uh, but they'll inevitably have to rule on and it And the injunction in it. Okay, the other big uh, issue, of course, we've been talking about for a long time is affordable housing and uh, the speaker has a whole pile of packages we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks the one thing that caught our eye was uh, uh, Sam Bell state senator who's way to the left and Brian Rube Newberry a Republican state rep to the right they agree on something bill what is it that they agree well, on they don't like the idea that there's language that suggests that the housing department the newly created housing department can by eminent domain take oh property. those words set people's hair on fire doesn't it I mean let, let's be honest about it though you know, DEM, DOT, there's so many layers to this. The idea that Stephen Pryor is going to roll <laughs> up in a state SUV, you know, <laughs> look around and say, yeah, I think we're going to take that building and that house right there. And then 15 minutes later, it's going to be gone. I mean, just look at some of the efforts to expand roadways in the state and the, and the challenges that come with eminent domain. It's a pretty unrealistic situation. How about the airport? <laughs> it took decades to be able to... To take those houses. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think it's a little bit of an overstated thing. Look, a lot of times you see issues of us versus them. The us is the progressive flank and the conservatives in this state. Them is the perceived institutional democratic machine, as it's, again, as perceived. And I think this is one of those scenarios where the alliance... They came together, right? They came together, and they've done this on a lot of other issues um, in the past, and it's a different lens to look at politics through, and I think it really applies here in Rhode Island, where progressives and Republicans have a lot more in common when it comes to pushing the boulder up the hill. 
this is just one example. But, yeah, but Lou, the underlying is it, a lot of people, and this came up a little bit last session, should the state be able to relax zoning codes, for example? And, and, and some of the towns are pushing back on that. Yeah, because it's not just uh, state properties. They're saying every city in town is going to have to follow this lead uh, unless they can show that there were some uh, environmental protections that are being violated, whether state or federal. Uh, but the pro you got to keep in mind here, this was a bipartisan vote. It was 69 to 2, I believe, which means seven Republicans joined in. Uh, I still have a problem, though, with the state telling cities and towns what they have to do with their buildings, uh, as opposed to just state buildings. And I think that the issue of eminent domain, I, I, I think it's a real issue. Uh, and you know what? It's like the, all these feel-good things. It's all going to be challenging the courts, just like we did with the tolls and the bridges. It's, it's all good in theory, but let's see what happens. They're going to have to line up behind the abortion case. That goes first, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I mean, I think the optics of taking people's houses to build housing <laughs> it is not great, right? So if, they're, if it's occupied buildings, I mean, if you're looking at some buildings that are owned by a family or owned by a business but not occupied or not in use, I think you can make an argument that this is in the public good and you can take those buildings and compensate those people financially. But if somebody's actually living in their house um, and there's a bunch of people living in their house yeah. and you want to take them to build housing, um, that, I just don't know how you explain that to people. This, this is, I think it's really aimed at buildings like the old Apex that was shut down and left empty forever and ever and ever right. because they weren't getting what they thought was fair market value for that property. Uh, that, I could see, could be subject to eminent domain. Or the threat of it, which would make them sell. Exactly. Right? That, Using that, it exactly. as a threat to make them sell. It's themselves. dangling yeah. there. Memorial Hospital comes to mind as well as another similar That was really the poster child because exactly. they said, well, because all of those buildings have water, sewer. It's not like you're starting from scratch. Exactly. The, the other thing in set a, a, more people's hair on fire a year ago was one bill was that every town uh, municipality would have to put uh, – municipal buildings that were not being used on a registry. And that sets people off like, oh, what are you going to do with that? And they backed off that. But Wendy, I remember you, we talked about affordable housing and you said, we got to start somewhere. So I, I knew this resistance was going to come. The governor had a big announcement on Thursday about 1,400 more units. But we know that $250 million just, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be years out before No, this. but you want to be in a position where you're doing that because you also want to keep young people in the state. You want to keep a workforce. You want to keep families here. You want to keep, um, you know, Rhode Island thriving as best you can. And if there isn't any place to live, and we were just talking about this, you know, housing prices in some parts of the state are really, you know, quote unquote, Boston numbers, right? They're just, it's, uh, people can't buy a house. Excuse me. So I think thinking about the future investment five to 10 years, that's what you want. You want to say, where do we want to be five or 10 years from now? We want to be a place where people can come and live. But we're like California and New York. More people are leaving their states than staying there and, and, and coming to it. We are not an attractive state for a work <clears throat> environment. And We're not as bad, though. We're not as bad as the outflow from California in terms of business outflow for tax reasons, right? And New York... Well, we don't, that's because we don't have that we many have, businesses. We have to see New York had the pandemic, and now it has sort of a huge... New York City has a huge sort of problem between because undocumented... Because the rents have gone you know, comical. Well, it's yeah. New York City also is just sort of not doing as well as it used to. People have fear of crime. They don't want to ride the subway. There's lots of reasons pushing people out of the city, but they're about to transform a lot of commercial real estate uh, into housing, right? Well, because they don't have any choice. Nobody's back in the office. They have the, the, their worst uh, commercial building crisis uh, yeah. in their history. Yeah. And these are all leveraged. A lot of these 
uh, real estate companies who own those buildings leverage, right? They borrowed at low interest rates and now the interest is higher, so it's really a, a huge problem. Another bill that may have flown a little bit under the radar screen is uh, free taxpayer funded, should we say, free school lunch, free to the people who are eating it, but uh, putting it on our dime. What caught my interest, and you guys talked about this on the radio on Dan York's show this week, what was curious to me was it, they're not quite sure how much this is going to cost. It's going to be anywhere from $22 million to $39 million. So what happened, the history was during the pandemic, the Fed stepped in, as they did with a lot of things, that will pay for this. Now they're backing off. This is full breakfast and lunch for everybody, whether you want it or need it. And I think some people have an issue with that. Others say this is what we should be doing because a hungry kid's not going to learn. Well, that's for sure. Right now, there's a schedule that outlines basically per child and an and income um, threshold for which someone qualifies for the free lunch, free breakfast program. This would do away with that and it would give it to everybody. Look, one concern that I have, and I think it, it applies across the board for anybody, is healthy food. You know, we're in a situation right now where you know, the amount of processed food, the amount of garbage that people eat um, is it's at an all-time high. And rather than maybe the, the appropriate thing to do with these dollars is to increase the quality of the meal that the, the, the low-income student or even low-to-middle-income student gets for free rather than give it away to everybody when you have a, a high-income family that can provide a more high-quality lunch, even if at the end of the day the kid's just going to eat the you know, what, that whatever was, junk food. That was Michelle Obama's thing. She wanted healthier lunches for the kids nationwide. Unfortunately, when you're putting fruits and vegetables on the kids' trays... <laughs> it's going in the dumpster. It was all in the dumpster. Yeah. Uh, the only thing they were drinking was their chocolate milk and the cookie. You know, it was funny because when our kids were... So my kids are 25 now. When they were in fourth and fifth grade, this was always a big deal. All right, you can... Because I usually cook for them. I, you know, my kids were getting chicken tortellini pesto and whatever we Chef had. Chef Hummel here. Yeah, it's right. The night before, you know, some other kids getting a bologna sandwich. But what was interesting to me, one day a week, I'd say, okay, you guys can pick hot lunch. And that was a big deal. They'd get the menu, and I hope that they shoot twins the same day they would do it. Sometimes Alex wanted Thursday and Cameron wanted Monday. So, But what Cameron came home one day and said to me, Dad, they've ruined hot lunch. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, the pizza dippers are made out of wheat now. So <laughs> the, kid, the kids know. So they were trying to be healthy, as you said. He didn't want hot lunch again. No. He never ordered it again. There's also, I mean, I, don't, I, I know this only from a while back. I'm not sure. I, the whole purchasing mechanism for food for lunches mm. used to be sort of a, a congressionally mandated federal deal between the dairy producers in some states. And, you know, I have excess milk. I have excess cheese. Right. We'll, we'll actually, we'll, it, we will, you know, agricultural uh, members of Congress would say, we'll support this if you mandate that they buy it from our farmers, right? Right, with this federal subsidy. So I don't know how all the purchasing works and where they're getting the food from. But the idea that we would be talking about $39 million out of a $13 billion, 13 plus billion dollar budget to feed children is a ridiculous conversation. Give them free breakfast, give them free lunch. I understand we want it to be healthy for 39 million out of 13 billion. Wendy, that's that's maybe, it, that's my comment. Maybe that's why our budget is $14 million. That money- I don't think our budget is 14 billion because we're trying to feed kids in schools. You know, but a little bit here, a little bit there, who is well, it? Well, what better investment is to feed children? Right, but so- There is no better investment so you, you know, can make. Well, you know what's on the block, the chopping block right now? Tuition subsidies at Rhode Island College. 
Well, feed all, only 60, uh, 40% of people go to college, less than 40%. But so if you can, do, if you can do one or the other, you feed would feed children. the kids. You yes. think it's worth $39 million for well, lunches may be, that may be going into the... Well, here's my okay, question about... Okay, million. Here's my question about how we purchase food for school lunches. Again, is there an inflated cost? Is there a deal with dairy producers or wheat producers? How is that all funded? I actually am not an expert. I don't know. But I would rather spend the $39 million on feeding all children so they don't have to worry about it. And they're not ostracized or stigmatized. Oh, you are not pulling out a wallet or with their phone, whatever, to pay for lunch. Uh, but I, you know, I am, and that that sticks with you for life. So let's equalize access to food. You think you're not going to be facing that when you're in the real world about I don't have the money, I don't have this. Do you I have can't to face out. it when We're you're seven to... years old? It's a ridiculous conversation. They give them the lunch. It should, we should How feed about you give them children. the lunch if they can't afford it, and then you backfill it with whatever. You put a pool of money and say, if they can't pay for it, then we'll pay for it. Because that was an issue for a while, lunch The shaming. shaming. Yeah, right. when, they, when they, the parents couldn't pay what the... It's, it's just, of all the things we invest in, really, why wouldn't you want to invest in, your, in children and making sure that they have enough energy to learn throughout the day? There's also an argument to be made that we should ab abolish the whole system. You know, you have these corporations like Aramark that are... Yeah. Giant, so, yeah. yeah, they're yeah. giant conglomerates. There's experiments happening, for example, on Aquinnick Island right now. It's not related to the schools, but there's a summer program where underserved kids are growing their own foods. They're working with local purveyors. They're working with the farmer's markets to essentially deliver food to, to underserved portions of the population, hands-on. And we can start to rethink school lunches. Like, look at other countries and what they're served, it could be a local deal where if we're gonna spend big money, maybe it's time to rethink using locally sourced food, healthy food, healthy local farm goods. And, 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 and use URI and Rhode Island College and Johnson & Wales and think about people who are gonna go into culinary, go into farming, go into agriculture and teach children how to do this. I, I think that's a good, that would be a very good use of money as well. But fundamentally, you know, uh, the late great Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I like to quote him to you, Lou, we have common ground there, used to say a child cannot learn if they're going to school hungry, period. End of story. All right, before we get to outrages and kudos, one thing we talked about last week that is starting to uh, roll out now. The governor said that by 2035, he wants to see all gasoline-powered engines, the sale of them in Rhode Island, banned. Not that you can't drive one, and this is the push toward um, EV. This is rolled around for a week. I wonder what you think with a, with a week's retrospective on this announcement. Sure, I got a good education earlier this week with Paul Zangari, WPRO <laughs> News, who's our resident car expert as well, and uh, I got to test drive a Genesis uh, like a luxury electric vehicle, taking it around the Wampanoag Trail. Don't tell Did the you just Robinson keep going police. to New Haven or exactly, what? Exactly, <laughs> pretty much. It, it may as well have. Um, really interesting experience. I also learned a lot about the, the mechanical side of these products and also about the legislation itself, which would allow for hybrid vehicles. So gas, uh, it's not as if no gasoline will be allowed as of 2035. What I will say, nice vehicle, $80,000 to buy it. Um, where are you going to charge it? Do we have anywhere near the infrastructure? What's the range? Uh, three, four, three, four hundred miles exactly yeah. Yeah. per charge. I think charge. the range anxiety is what a lot of people are worried about. What do you think? Uh, you're going you're to be surprised to hear this from me, but I think we are overusing the term ban these days in American <laughs> politics. You think? And I think Americans don't like the word ban. Book sure. ban, you know, gasoline-driven car ban, and assault rifle ban. We can talk about gas, that. Gas stove ban. Gas stove ban. Dishwasher ban. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I hadn't heard the dishwasher well, ban. Well, yeah. they're going to reduce the amount of water that it can use. <laughs> oh. so they're banning the water so, so then you have to redo, you have to no, do no, two no, cycles instead of one. They've already done that with washing machines, but I think we can make that happen. The point is, I think politically it's become too popular with the left and the right, and okay. I think it scares people sure. when you use the word ban. It says, I'm going to restrict your choices. And so I just thought it was a little much. Uh, and I was surprised. Well, I got to tell you, you know, in the last year, uh, five grids uh, across the country were hacked and destroyed and shut down. And we have a very porous and weak system of uh, our elect electrical grids here in America. All it takes is one hack, one huge hack. And you're not going Russia, anywhere. <laughs> and the whole country shuts down. So I'll go along with the hybrids where yeah. you can have gas in there, but do not say that no more combustible engines. That's well, and the major thing is the charging stations. And I know you'd have to ramp up, but 12 years is a short period of time. So if you have a house, you can do it. What if you're in an apartment? Where are you going to plug but in? But the, the right? Biden administration, so, right? The Biden administration put money in the Inflation Reduction Act, $44 billion. To boost the infrastructure. To boost charging stations. But you're absolutely right. And my point is, yes, it's cleaner uh, fuel. It's cleaner electricity, cleaner power. It's still power. It's still something. So you'd know, rather use the carrot than the stick. Eliminate the word ban. I, I just think tell, give people incentives, maybe tax credits. Also, give them free charging stations, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's it. You buy the car, the them, and Tesla used to do this apparently, but they don't anymore. You will come make it possible for somebody to charge it conveniently. And think of also low-income neighborhoods, perhaps, or crime-ridden neighborhoods. You're going to stand there for an hour and charge your car in that neighborhood? No, you're not. No. So we have to make this equally accessible to everybody. All right. Yep. Wendy, let me stay with you. Outrage or kudo this week? Oh, uh, you know me. Uh, I, I like to have um, kudos. <laughs> you certainly do. She just can't bring herself to do it. Um, no, I'm actually going to do something surprising. Uh, I am going to say uh, kudo to Washington right now for at least trying to negotiate about the debt ceiling limit. Uh, McCarthy, as Speaker, got a package through the House, through his caucus. Uh, Democrats won't take that package, but he got the package through. Um, they haven't pushed it aside. They're not threatening to have the whole uh, economy crumble. Uh, whether they come out with an agreeable uh, agreement, we'll wait and see. But kudos to them for doing it. You know, it's like starting a paper three weeks before the deadline or two days before the deadline. And they seem to have started a couple weeks before the deadline. I'm sensing a lively extra because I think we need to talk about some national stuff. So hang on just a second. Bill, what do you have for Outrage or Kudo? Uh, very quickly, the, most of us have seen the Matt Riley situation the Cranston councilman who was uh, caught with crack cocaine in his car. It's a terrible situation. There's a lot of backstory there. The body camera footage came out very quickly and has been widely disseminated on a national basis. But something troubled me over the course of the week. ABC6, one of the three local TV stations here, showed up at Riley's house, mm -hmm. knocked on the door, and approached his mom just hours after her son was found passed out in a vehicle with a crack pipe in his hand, watching any semblance of an organized life collapse. I thought it was completely irresponsible, immature, clickbait journalism, if you can even call it journalism. They should be embarrassed for that, and we should do better as reporters, as media storytellers. We should do better than harassing someone's mom. Counsel, you get the last minute. There was a resolution in the House of Representatives in Washington this week that passed uh, 413 to 2, and it was to honor and recognize our fallen police officers. The two who voted against it were Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush, two members of the Progressive Squad. 
Uh, and they said that, no, we're not standing. And they both want to defund the police. They've already been very vocal about that. Meanwhile, it's Corey Bush had $60,000 just in the last fiscal year for private security for herself. And by the way, the private security that she hired, she quietly married him after he got the $60,000. I think that is outrageous. Wow. All right. Folks, as I had alluded to before, we have some national issues to get to. So let's do this. We're going to go online and do a lively extra segment. We haven't done this for a few weeks, but right now, if you were so inclined, go to ripbs.org slash lively, where we'll do nine or 10 minutes on national. If you can't join us, let us bid farewell to Lou Polner and Wendy Schiller and Bill Bartholomew. And for those of us who don't catch us on uh, Lively Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we are all over social media. You can go to our website, Facebook, Twitter, and your favorite podcast. Maybe not as popular as the Bartholomew Town podcast, but we're right up there. So take us with you as you go. Stick with us for Lively Extra. For those of you leaving us, we'll see you next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by hi i'm john hazen white jr for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face rhode islanders i'm a proud supporter of this great program and rhode island pbs